Investable Universe is about thematic topics in real assets investing. This is what we mean by the global market of things, real estate, infrastructure, land, energy, and other commodities that have historically been viewed as boring old income investments. But take a look at the shifts underway in these asset classes, from industry disruptors to new investors to emerging markets to geopolitics, and you'll find these assets are anything but dull. We'll talk about private equity, venture capital, corporate VC, sovereign wealth funds, listed markets, crazy startups, some old guard investment firms, some maverick entrepreneurs, and some paradigm-changing technologies. One thing is certain, no corner of the global market of things will be left untouched by the changes happening right now, and that's what we'll be talking about on this podcast. It's all part of our expanding investable universe, and maybe it'll be part of yours too. It's an honor and a real treat to share with you a very special post-election episode of the podcast. My guest is a friend and fellow traveler of Investable Universe. John Ellis is the founder and editor of News Items, a daily newsletter that covers global politics, financial news, advanced technologies, and science. He is a creature of the news business and a doyen of the American political scene as viewed from the inside. He has been in and around the news business for most of his adult life, working for NBC News as a political analyst, the Boston Globe as a columnist, CNBC as a consultant, Fox News Elections and Business News, and News Corp. From 2016 to 2019, he did special projects for Rupert Murdoch, including the creation of the Wall Street Journal's CEO Council Morning Newsletter, the reinvention of Fox News Channel's Election Day voter analysis, and the scouting of startup investment opportunities and business partnerships. Mr. Ellis is a graduate of Yale University and was the Appleman Fellow at the Shorenstein Center at Harvard's JFK School of Government. He also was a senior fellow at Harvard's Institute of Politics and from 2002 to 2004 was a senior fellow at the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point, focusing there on future threats. He was awarded the Outstanding Civilian Service Award by the U.S. Army for his work at West Point. He will soon be starting a podcast with the Recount.com and iHeartRadio based on news items. Today, we're going to talk about the election, the American political climate, the outlook for private equity, and what on earth might be in store for us in 2021. John Ellis, thank you for joining Investable Universe. Thank you for having me. Now, this is not your first time at the rodeo. So how shocked are you by what has unfolded in the past few days? And uh, or are you appealing for calm? Uh, well, politically, I was shocked that the Republicans did so well. I mean, all we, all we heard leading up to the election was blue wave or, you know, a, a, you know they're kind of like a half wave or a full wave or whatever. Um, but the fact is, the Republicans did very, very well. They, they looks like they will defend the majority in the Senate. Obviously, Georgia can go the other way, but my guess is that they'll do well there. Um, so they, if I'm right, they successfully defended their majority in the Senate. They gained seats in the House. Everybody expected them to lose between 10 and 15. They gained seats. Um, they did very well in the gubernatorial races that were uh, on the ballot. There weren't many of them. Uh, and they did very well down ballot, the state Senate, state legislature. So, uh, so all in all, they did very well. And of course, President Trump, who was said to be, you know, uh, eight to 10 points behind nationally and behind, you know, a lot in individual states that would decide the outcome, uh, did extraordinarily well, uh, turned out his campaign, and I think he personally really turned out an enormous, uh, uh, you know, percentage of his, quote, base, um, and he came very close to winning. I mean, it, it was an astonishing performance, um, and I would, if I were a Democrat, I, I guess I would be happy that, you know, Trump 
if, <laughs> I think it's safe to say that she'd be happy that Trump is gone. Uh, but I would be very concerned about what happened down the ballot. Sure. So a qu- just a question on the polls heading into the election. To what do you attribute? It seems that the, the, that the numbers underneath, you know, the poll science is off once again. To what do you attribute this miss in the, you know, in the, in the election numbers? I, I mean, I, th- I think that the last election, everybody was like, whoa, how did we miss it? I think this one is, whoa, it doesn't work. Um, and pretending that it does is no longer viable. I mean, what happened in the last seven days of the election was an epic fail on part of what people call the polling industry. Um, But I think what happens is the refusal rates are very, very high. So if you make 100 calls, you get five people that will cooperate. And so these things about the error margin being 2% or 3% or 4%, I think is complete nonsense. I really do. Um, But even if you take it at face value, um, you and I run for Congress and we tie at 45 in the poll, um, that can be 49-41, your way or my way, right? Um, so there's the margin of error factor that people don't really understand. I mean, they, they look at it 48-46 and they say somebody's ahead by two, but that's not even close to being true, right? It could be whatever. So, uh so there's that. And then I think the refusal rate is a problem. I think the technological difficulty in the old, when I started, was, you know, it was all landline. You could reach people, you know, where they live, so on and so forth. You know, people, I live in Connecticut, but I have a 914 area code on my mobile phone from when we lived in New York. You know, so there's the whole location problem. Uh and then we, we don't really want to hear from these people, right? So we have all these defenses. And, and one of the defenses is it comes up as a spam call, you know, so that doesn't work. Um, and then I think the other, the big thing, the, probably the most important thing is that uh, very conservative voters uh, and Trump voters uh, were, which, you know, were basically the same thing this time around, but they are, they don't want to participate. You know, they, they're, they think the media and all this stuff is some kind of, you know, it's not their thing. It's not, it's not on their side. So they don't, they don't, you know, participate. And back in the days when we had most people voted in person, I was part of the NBC News election, and we would interview people coming out of the polls, every seventh person at this precinct and every ninth person at this other precinct. And we had an enormous problem because the very conservative voters just would say, no, no I, I'm not going to participate. And so that problem persisted from, you know, from the time I was, you know, at NBC in 1980, 84, 88. To you know, 2000, uh, 2016. Yeah. Um, and so even yeah. a very conservative voter in the because I feel like the eighties were. I mean, that was that was Reagan era. It was not that was not far enough to. <laughs> no, no, it was too. It wasn't that. I mean, they were perfectly happy to vote for Reagan, but they didn't want to participate with something that was you know organization that they perceived as being against Reagan, right? Um. And the news media was critical of Reagan throughout his administration. And so uh, 16, it, I mean, I did it in 2000, 
2004, I looked at all the exit polls, and you know the, the the first cut of the exit polls were consistently three to seven points to Democratic, right? So you start out the day and you think, oh, you know, uh, uh, what Biden, Biden has won because he's seven, he's nine points ahead in the national, and he's six points ahead in Wisconsin. I looked at the sheet from the from the consortium, the non Fox AP group, and uh, you know, it's just plus six, plus eight, plus four, plus state by state, uh, and it's a real problem. And I don't think they know how to fix it. And I don't think, you know, at some levels, what's the point, right? So as we look at, as we look ahead, okay, so, it's, so it looks like it's not official yet, but it does look like Biden is going to be the next president. Um, the market has moved higher in the past few days in the expectation that the Senate will remain, that this, well, that the Senate is remains Republican controlled and that there will be a Democrat in the White House, which spells gridlock. And why does this, why is this good news for the market? Why, why would, why would investors think this is a good thing? Um, well, I think first is that they don't, that, that on the taxes, I don't think that that would get through a Republican Senate. So they're probably happy with that. Generally speaking, divided government means that not much can happen. And if you're if you're Wall Street or whatever, that's probably a good thing, not a bad thing. The third thing is that both the Biden administration and now Senator McConnell, assuming he's still the majority leader, uh, will want to do you know, sort of a second wave of stimulus. Um, and so that makes uh, I would think make Wall Street happy. And then the third thing is you now have in the Biden administration, you will have people who will address seriously and, and and I mean, very seriously take the, the second wave and what's going to be a third wave of the pandemic. Uh, and I think that will give people confidence um, that we're not, this thing is very close to spinning completely out of control. I mean, we this is like, wow. When you say uh, this whole thing, do you mean like the United States? Oh, no, no, I mean, I mean the virus in, in oh, the United States. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I think, I mean, I think in some of these Midwestern cities, you, you're going to, there, there's going to be no place to go, uh, in terms of the hospitals. Um, and I, we're very close to being overwhelmed by it. And so having an administration that, you know, believes in the science and takes seriously these things, uh, is going to, I think it gives the markets confidence. Yeah. Okay. So what, what do you think is going to be, is going to be needed to help the Midwestern states, for example, to make it through? I mean, it's, you know, obviously it's, you know, these, there's so many aspects of the healthcare infrastructure in, in, in large swaths of the U.S. that have been, you know, underfunded, underinvested. I mean, there's a lot of issues coming to bear with COVID, right? You have to, you have to just massively subsidize healthcare, right? I mean, at least for a year or two or three. I think, I think that's fine, by the way. I think the science by 2030 will have cured uh, or fixed a lot of disease, including, you know, sort of the, uh, diabetes and blood pressure and so on and so forth. So I don't, uh, subsidizing the hell out of healthcare is good. Um, okay. but initially, you think Republicans will let that happen? <laughs> uh, well, you know, if, it, if people start dying, um, you know, it's not good for your, it's not good for the party. So, uh, and they will be dying. I mean, the death rate is, I mean, as you know, the, the infection rate goes, A, 
and then lagging behind it is the death rate. So, uh, or being, yeah. So anyway, um, so there's that subsidize the hell out of it. And then there's, uh, part B, which is just sort of good practices, right? There's social distancing, there's masks and that stuff. And then I think if it really gets out of hand, which it, as I say, might, um, I think, or doctors that I talk to or uh, scientists that I talk to think that it might get out of hand. Um, uh, then I think you go to 30-day lockdown. You basically say on you know January 1, it's, it's January 1 for 30 consecutive days. Um, you don't pay any bills. You don't nothing, right, um, which is what China essentially did, and it worked. Um, so we'll see. What, in terms of of willingness to comply with these, with even, you know, voluntary measures that have been scientifically demonstrated to reduce the spread of COVID. Do you think that now that the election is over, that these measures will be less politicized in a sense that, I mean, my, my sense is that, uh, this idea of complying with lockdowns or even complying with social distancing and mask wearing became, it became a very, uh, a very volatile subject because of the closeness of the election and associating, you know, voluntary health measures with one candidate as opposed to another. Do you think that's, do you think that's the case? To any- uh, I, I think pandemic fatigue is really a problem, right? Um, and personally, I think the only way to address that problem is to go into the, it's January one for 30 consecutive days uh, solution, because then you have a national effort and you also, but so the pressure is off you to pay bills and so on and so Everybody can catch up with their bills, you know, this mortgage company or that credit card company uh, uh, just down the road. I mean, it's not or they could, you know, amortize it over over a period of time. So it's not it's not that big a deal. But if you're part of a national thing that says, okay, it's January 1 for 30 days, that's, you know, that's kind of a good, you know, people will get into that. I do. I the thing that's working against it um, is pandemic fatigue. And, you know, I don't think there are a lot of people that don't want to spend time with their family on Christmas or Thanksgiving or whatever. So that's that's a problem. We have this conversation. I mean, Europe is into its second lockdown period. What extent do you think that that we might be looking at something like that in uh, in the U.S.? Or can we do we have the ability to get ahead of it by saying, OK, Thanksgiving, if people are traveling and seeing their families and starting to celebrate the holidays, that's a real danger sign. What's your take on that? Um, I think that uh, the Trump administration has bungled this from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was part of an effort in January to convince them to take it seriously, yeah, uh, which, they, which they did not do. Um, uh, and so I don't, I don't hold out any hope for you know, a reversal of sort of competence, I guess. Sure. Uh, it's tough because it's such a big country and, you know, uh, hospitals being overloaded in South Dakota doesn't really mean anything to people on the East Coast. But but it, 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 the United States of America, particularly the middle part of the United States of America, is in a really, mm-hmm. really bad place. Sure. And it could get really much, much yeah. worse. So. Fingers crossed, I guess. Why do you think the Trump administration was unwilling to take the threat seriously in January, despite your uh, and those of others? To well, I, I mean, my I, my contribution was not 
anything like uh, the contribution of others. But uh, but I think it was. Um, I think they. I think it's that thing of you don't want to think that it's going to happen. As part of it is just sort of denial. And then part of it was concern that it would do damage to the president's political standing and then do damage to the markets, which would do damage to his political standing. And uh, so they took that minimal sort of uh, move to shut down uh, people from China coming into the country. But, um, but I, and I also think, I just don't think that the president has any sort of understanding of the science involved. And he was not, I mean, President Bush, uh, George Bush, W. Bush, uh, read that, read the pandemic book that John Barry wrote about the, about the pandemic of 1918 and had understanding and context for what that meant. And so initiated a huge policy review and so on and so forth. Obama also, you know, uh, sort of understood it intellectually and, and, and made sure that public health kept up to date on it. Uh, and because they went through the SARS crisis and uh, that there was that. So, but I don't think President Trump really understood it and really understood how important it was. And that was a failure of, you know, curiosity, I think. Um, failure of curiosity. <laughs> And, and I think Fauci and the others did their best, but I, uh, I don't know. I, it was weird. He didn't, he wasn't interested in the subject, mm-hmm. which seemed I, impossible. But. Or, I mean, was it, was it just the China angle? I mean, was it that the worse it got, the worse he thought it would make China look or that somehow no. not addressing it would? No, I mean, if you go back to that, I mean, the thing that was extraordinary about the China pivot, you know, it's China's fault, China's awful, China's terrible, is, is that that was not the public communication in January and February. That In January and February, he said, Xi is doing a great job. I mean, it, it, it defies belief what what happened, and uh, and it, it, you know it, it, if they had taken it seriously, done the, you know it's January one for thirty days, and they really clamped down on it, the, the situation would be better. It wouldn't be much better, much much better because it's such a big country and people fly in and out and all that kind of stuff, but. But it would be so much better, and uh, as you know, it, it, I believe. I mean, I I've said this a hundred times. I, I think it was a failure of curiosity. Mm-hmm. So, just to sort of circle back to the election, I mean, it's clear. We, I mean, we agree. <laughs> President Trump, the Trump administration bungled this pandemic. It's it beggars belief what has happened this year. It was such a colossal failure. And yet many people voted for Trump anyway. In fact, a surprising number of voters, even in states that are getting hit, you know, that in the Midwest, for example, that is completely, that are, are being completely uh, blindsided and, and headed for worse, probably, in terms of the spread of the pandemic, voted for him anyway. Um, well, my first question is, to what do you attribute this? I mean, that it seems like a cognitive dissonance at a, a very large scale, to say the least. I always, I always thought uh, Charles Murray, the, the, I guess they call him a sociologist or a social commentator or whatever, quite a controversial one. But he, I, his line was that the 2016 election 
the the role Trump played was as the murder weapon, right? Uh, he was he was there essentially to to kill Washington, and uh, <laughs> and so I think I I don't think that um, anger uh, toward a system that a lot of people viewed as they'll send you to war, but they won't take care of you. They will. You know, allow private equity to strip mine your business and so on and so forth. I mean, there, there's a whole range of anti-elitist, you know, there's just a feeling that no one cares about them. And Trump made a big point of caring about them. Um, and I think it was just a case of, you know, having committed one murder, there was a, there was the opportunity to commit another uh, so there was that. Um, the other, another thing that I think was going on, Biden represented not a step forward, which is the way a lot of people in the East Coast and West Coast perceive him, but as a step backwards for the middle part of the country. We're just going back to the morass that we had tried to assassinate in 2016. But there was that. And then there was the cultural stuff and, and social disorder and all that kind of stuff, defund the police. and a disaster for the Democrats. Um, so I think all those things. And then I think Trump was a fantastic showman. Uh, and the last week of the campaign, he campaigned, you know, really hard. And I think in the midst of uh, economic recession and the pandemic and uh, real concern about, you know, sort of the, the where the country is going, um, the choice between the old Osama bin Laden line of the, between a strong horse and a weak horse, people will go with a strong horse. At the, at the last week of the campaign, Trump was clearly the strong horse and Biden was the weak horse. So I think that, uh, I think that helped Trump a lot. The other thing that helped Trump a lot is they had a fantastic turnout operation. So they, I think they literally turned out 95% of their voters, which is unprecedented. So in terms of what happens next for the, for, I guess what you would, I wouldn't call it a Trump coalition, but maybe the Trump cohort or the, you know, the, basically the critical mass of Trump supporters. The base. Would, <laughs> the what? The base. The base. Well, yeah. Okay. So the Trump base moving, moving forward, Trump's out of the white house. The base obviously is, has got some kind of critical mass that can move, you know, that can, that can move the needle in terms of, uh, in terms of elections, what do you see? What do you see coming next for them? How are they? How do they continue to influence American politics at either the state or the federal level? In the next, oh, I, I mean, they they will do, they will decide who is the, the uh, next Republican nominee for president in two thousand twenty four. So that's that's kind of a big deal. Um, Trump himself is not going to go away. I mean, everybody says he's addicted to Twitter, but what he's actually addicted to is TV. Um, and the Twitter... Declining media, by the way. It's on a cup of court. The, the, the Twitter uh, is a sort of a way, a marketing tool to, to have people watch him on TV. Um, so I think he'll become a major force. I mean, I think he'll replace Rush Limbaugh as the, as the voice of sort of the populist right. Um, you have that, Trump, and then you have his base making the determination of who the 224 nominee is. Um, and the, the thing I think that's going to happen is that the, the, there, there's a significant part of Trump's base uh, that um, is 
in favor of much more active government intervention on their behalf. Um, and so the Sanders message uh, resonates with the, that base. And I think some of it will, if the Democrat, you know, there's going to, the left is ascendant on the Democratic side, the, the Trump uh, base has captured the Republican Party, um, but it may be diminished somewhat by, by the uh, Democratic left if they sensibly sort of walk in uh, Medicare for all, you know, over time, uh, shore up Social Security, etc. Mm-hmm. So do you see a schism within the Republican Party? I mean, I think that the, the, the classic line is that Democrats fall in love and Republicans fall in line and that whoever the Republican nominee is, the party will sort of support them. And yet it seems there is some, you know, we talked about cognitive dissonance, you know, in, in different parts of the electorate. Do you see that happening within the Republican Party? Can this party remain the, uh, you know, the pro-business, small government, what, you know, that kind of traditional line about Republicans? Is that... I, I, I mean, I don't think there is a Republican Party anymore. I think I think there's a Trump populist party. Um, Trump's approval rating amongst Republicans was 95 percent or 90 percent, depending on which poll you look at. So he, he is um, he's not just a dominant figure. He's t- a totally dominant figure in the Republican Party. And you're, you know, if he endorses in 2024, I suspect that that person will be the nominee, uh, whoever he endorses. So uh, the the Republicans that you and I maybe grew up with, uh, you know, business people and Wall Street people and so on and so forth, you know, that group is, I don't know, 3%. I mean, it's just, they're not influential in the party in terms of, in terms of votes. Um, and their money no longer matters. That's the, the most important development, it seems to me, in this campaign was small donor contributions to Trump, uh, which were big, uh, added up to a lot of money, I think $600 million. But the most astonishing uh, fundraising operation was Act Blue, uh, which is a left, uh, liberal left uh, Democratic uh, organization that does online fundraising. Uh, in the second, in the third quarter, uh, they raised one point five billion dollars. B billion dollars. That that erases any big donor uh, advantage that the Republicans have long, you know, uh, benefited from. So, you know, if you're part of if you're part of the Trump populist party, you look at Wall Street saying here's 100,000 or here's a million or whatever, it's like we don't need it. You know, we don't we don't need you anymore. And that that's on both sides, right? So, at blue, Democrats, you know, they can raise all the money they need on online, same with the Republicans. That's that spells very bad news for private equity. Oh. So where is, can you, can you give a little, um, before we get into private equity, can you give a little, uh, maybe more color on, on who supports Act Blue? I mean, wh- who are the Act Blue donors? I mean, is this like, are these coastal tech elites? Is this like, yeah. It's the Sanders, AOC, um, you know, sort of, uh, academic. I mean, if, if you went to, uh, 
the Middle West, or you're driving in a car, right? You go to Iowa City, which is the University of Iowa. You go to Ames, which is Iowa State. You go to Columbus, which is Ohio, you know Ohio State, etc. You have tech and academic centers as sort of the geographical uh, uh, locations of of this of this money. Um, but if you look at Sanders' vote in across the country in 2016, he ran, you know, he ran very well uh, in any number of states. So there's a base there. Um, and then AOC has captured the imagination of a younger cohort, the 18 to 29 year olds. And, you know, they can throw $50 or $28 or whatever at campaigns. And $1.5 billion in, in one quarter is just absolutely unbelievable. And I, if if someone were to write the history of the 2020 campaign, that would be the most important chapter. Yeah. Okay. So we so you had mentioned that that you know that something that the Trump base, let's say, has in common with you know the rising, the ascendant, further to the left uh, quadrant of the Democratic Party is that they don't uh, is is distrust of financial elite, let's say private equity, <laughs> bad news for private equity. And you, you had, you've mentioned that you think 2021 is going to bring a reckoning for private equity or backlash. Let's call it that. Um, can talk, talk a little bit about that. Well, I think, I think if you're Joe Biden, you're, you're obviously looking for revenue to yeah. you know, mm-hmm. the deficit somewhat under control and you're going to do a second wave of stimulus. So if you're going to trade with the Republicans, you have to do so uh, with some, you know, uh, uh, whatever the word is that that you that you take and you give, so you give and take, I guess. Um, and uh, the easiest place to get consensus, one of the easiest places to get consensus, is to roll back the carried interest tax break and to tax, you know people who make $10 million or more or something like that. And, uh, and that those two will not have much, uh, opposition on the, on the, uh, Republican or the democratic side, the Republicans, there will be opposition, but the Trump base will not oppose it. Um, so, uh, so I think that's, you know, the first thing that's going to happen or one of the first things that's going to happen long term because their money doesn't matter anymore, uh, then they're orphaned a little bit. Uh, and, you know, that uh, we talked about this before, that then in the, when this all started, when this private equity sort of craze began, it was about taking companies that were underperforming and fixing them and investing in them and getting them back on track and then taking them public and eventually making money. Um, that has become, you know, sort of a strip mining of company after company after company, most famously Toys R Us, but again and again and again, you, they're, they're littered on the road and that's cost a lot of people, a lot of jobs. And so out there in the Trump base, there's real hatred for private equity and it's begun, you know, a lot of people didn't know what it was at first, but more and more of them are kind of getting what it's at. So if you don't have the support of the Sanders wing and you don't have support of the Trump base, you're looking at a 55% of the electorate. Uh, so I, I think they, they really need to, uh, to figure out what their strategy is because uh, the reckoning is coming for them. So in terms of, I mean, I don't want to play devil's advocate here. I mean, I, I, you know, I look at private. Oh, go ahead. 
<laughs> but in terms of, you know, I look at private equity as, you know, maybe, I mean, this is, a, they've got something like $1.5 trillion in dry powder. I mean, the fundraising efforts for private equity, I mean, have been tremendous in the past few years. They got oh. huge war chest. And in a world, especially in, you know, in, in the, in a place, in many countries, you know, as a, as a result of COVID, if you want someone to invest in recovery, that's where the money is. So let's put it to where it's like, if they need to do, you know, if they need to, even if it's just a, like a, a PR operation, just to, um, you know, <laughs> to, you know, to, uh, to uh, clean up the, the optics of the, of the situation, you would think that, you know, private equity is in a position to be able to do some, some, some good economically. I mean, one yeah, no, great, I, you had mentioned I, Toys R I think, you know, uh, Goldman Sachs has done a uh, small business uh, sort of incubation uh, project in Iowa uh, and elsewhere. And it's been, you know, really well received. I mean, at Goldman Sachs, I think, although it has a negative uh, favorability rating or whatever they call it uh, nationally, I think in Iowa, it's, it's quite well regarded. Um, so the right thing, the smart thing for private equity to do is sort of replicate what Goldman has done in Iowa um, and make a big splash about it, right? Um, the, the private equity raising all that money is, you know, if interest rates are zero and, and insurance companies and university endowments and, you know, pension plans of major states and minor states um, require that X amount be invested in bonds and unis and stuff, then there's this enormous pressure to amp up uh, the returns in other parts. And that all of that basically is what you and I call alternative investments. Uh, so hedge funds and private equity um, and the demand on then on private equity to produce those returns so they can raise another 1.5 trillion uh, puts enormous amounts of pressure, all of it downward on employment. Um you know, the way to cut costs is to fire people. So that's the that's the thing about the the kind of cycle of it is that it all conspires to cut costs. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if one area where private equity might be able to deploy some capital as well as clean up their reputation publicly is to invest in R and D heavy enterprises. Because it seems that that is an area. I mean. We've, uh, you know, you and I have talked before about how, um, you know, that when uh, companies go, you know, pub companies that are publicly traded, you know, once they, once they're in the public markets, the R and D expenditure just really evaporates because there's right. the pressure is on to do share buybacks. Right. You know, the pressure is on to deliver the quarter. I mean, right. something like a, you know there's tremendous need for investment in new uh, energy technologies, um, new infrastructure related technologies, anything 5G related. Those, so those technologies can take a long time to uh, develop. It's outside the range of you know, the holding period for maybe VC in the absence of any kind of government level funding. I mean, unless you want government to be in the, in the business of, you know, picking winners and losers in the space, which maybe they should be. <laughs> it seems that that's a role. That's a part that, private equity can play, you know, by, you know, basically uh, uh, subsidizing the, the longer term, you know, if it takes eight to 10 years to, to develop a technology, there's a very limited number of players that can, that can afford that kind of holding period. Maybe instead of buying another warehouse somewhere, you know, why not, 
fund, you know, some transformational science. What do you think of yeah. that? Is that, do you think they'll be receptive or is that just, am I talking into the wind? <laughs> no, I think, I think it's the right thing to do. So you go in front of the pension fund and you say, well, we're, you know, we've invested in this R and D and it's really probably not going to pay off for another seven years. And the pension fund is like, Oh my God, you know, you gotta be kidding me. But if, if we can agree, if everybody can agree that, you know, there's some sort of, uh, mark that's not necessarily mark to market um, and that you're there's sort of a beneficial tax status or something then then you reward R&D and you punish whatever uh, then then I think it can be done um, and that's the you basically have to move the tax structure so that R&D startup uh, all of that is given beneficial treatment and that the the rip it and strip it is not given beneficial treatment. That's a big change. And now, you know, I I think that the Trump coalition would be in favor of that, and the Democrats would be basically in favor of that. So the opposition will come from <laughs> private equity. Well, what about opening? Now, this is this now. Here's something that will not fall on. <laughs> that will be opposed by private equity. What do you think of opening private equity to retail investors more broadly? Good move or bad move? I think, I mean, you and I share a friend in Bob Rice, um, and, uh, you know, you, you need to be a, quote, qualified investor now. Um, and uh, I think if there's somebody who's packaging it, uh, sort of a mutual fund, if you will, um, then I think it's a good idea. Um, I think, you know, it, it would be nice to be able to invest, say, in infrastructure. It would be nice to be able to invest in 5G or whatever and to be part of a private pool you need you need a private market of some kind that's available to uh an individual uh to be able to assess you know uh, whether they should sell or not um but i do think it's a good idea i just think that it has to be constructed in a way that you know, doesn't become a way to uh, slaughter the sucker, so to speak. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, a lot has been said of the role that public markets play in uh, price discovery, <laughs> you know, the right. price discovery process, and that, you know, it was WeWork. I mean, the whole the whole saga of WeWork and the flimsy valuation that was ascribed to that company, I mean, that didn't come to light until it was preparing to go public. It right. was the IPO process that shone a light on the valuation of WeWork, and so that's—I right. mean—that's a cautionary tale in terms of like, well, you know, is it why is it you know why is what is a company really worth? Is it just because yeah. it's, you know these and these funding rounds and the you know the 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 pressure to have you know to have progressively you know higher higher valued rounds every time it creates a kind of uh, you know it can create a bubble I think in some in some respects totally. so maybe that. Yeah. You know. I I mean I, I never got WeWork from the beginning. <laughs> like we're gonna we're gonna rent space in New York and it's really really expensive, and then we're going to rent it out to you for you know relatively affordable price. And like how, how does that work? Um, but uh, I don't you know I the, the, it's everybody knew if you were uh jp morgan chase you knew how bad it was inside of uh, we work um and that as you look at it you say wow that that jp morgan chase was going to take this company public 
uh, and you say to yourself, "Wow, I mean, there's, there, it was, it was a disaster." Um, but they were going to put it out there for us to buy, and that's that's the problem is that if it, if it's a private market and alternative investing is available to the consumer. Uh, J- J.P. Morgan Chase and the WeWork is a cautionary tale to me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, and the president of the New York Stock Exchange, Stacey Cunningham, who's a you know fantastic longtime broker, has been very uh, very articulate on the on the subject of you know the longer that companies stay private. Um, and this kind of VC, the distortions, the possible distortions of, of in the venture capital market, uh, it exacerbates inequality because it's retail and it's, re, it's retail investors that don't have access to the real growth period of a of a company. They're sort of you know left with you know, once the company goes public and maybe you know people those who have cashed out have already have already done so. But I mean it's a it's a complex issue. Um, uh, very, very complex. But again, it exacerbates the political problem, which is the insiders are the ones who truly benefit, and you might actually be left holding the bag of useless WeWork stock. Um, so, I, you know, it, it somebody has to give give it confidence, you know, sort of behave in such a way. So there needs to be a Paul Volcker who gives people confidence that it's on the up and up. How, how likely are we to get a Paul Volcker type figure in the next four years, given the political situation? <laughs> I, think it's, I think, you know, I think Mike Bloomberg as Treasury Secretary would give people a lot of confidence. Really? Um, do you think that yeah. is, is, do you think he's, is, do you know, is he talking to Bloomberg? Uh, no, I don't know. But, you know, Mike Bloomberg invested enormous amount of money uh, in the not in it. I mean, he did in his own campaign, but then he spent a hundred million dollars in Florida and he spent, you know, over and over again, he helped Democratic candidates and causes. Um, and, you know, if you're, it would seem to me, given the hard work and the generosity that he uh, exhibited, um, that you were with Joe Biden and you were looking to reassure Wall Street and this, that, and the other thing. Mike would be, would be a fantastic uh, choice. Um, it's important, you know, these, these positions that nobody pays attention to in the main are important in terms of, you know, the confidence of the, you know, sort of the financial advisors and stuff. So if that's done well by the Biden administration, I think it'll have, it'll enable innovative ways for people to invest, like, you know, private markets and uh, alternative investments. Yeah. So, I mean, on the topic of alternative investments and new ways of investing, I mean, what, how, how uh, likely or how desirable do you think it is to introduce maybe new funding structures? I mean, something like, you know, in uh, in India, which is a you know, big market for huge uh, growth in terms of their data consumption. There's a you know tremendous uh, you know, uh, appetite for investment in data centers, investment in telecom towers, sovereign wealth funds want to get in there and, you know, invest in India. What you can invest in things like uh, infrastructure, you know, the infrastructure investment trust. That's very similar to what we call a REIT here in the a real estate investment trust here here in the U.S. What about um, making infrastructure investment open to investors according and you know using that kind of structure, which broadens you know broadens the the pool of potential investors and gives people a stake in the in in the maintenance and improvement of those assets. I'm a hundred. I I think that's, I actually think that's inevitable. And personally, 
I want to invest in a turnpike road in some state that I can watch the quarters or whatever the now the dollars uh, go into the baskets um, and and be able to pay my little coupon. So uh, yeah, no, and and there are various structures. Our friend Bob Rice had you know wrote an essay about how you could structure a, a product that would. Uh, build and fix infrastructure and be beneficial to uh, to individual investors. So yeah, yeah, go. Is that I mean, sure? It's inevitable, but do you think we could see something like that in the next four years? I mean, are we talking about? Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, I think you know the infrastructure in the United States of America is a disaster, right? Um, so and and it's a way to generate jobs, and you know, um, so I think I think it's. Uh, I think the Trump base would be for it. I think the Democratic Party would be for it. That's a critical mess. And and will it be? Will there be forces in the U.S. Congress uh, that try to slow it down? Yes, but you know, uh, if Trump endorses it on Fox News, I mean, it's it's almost irresistible. Is that? I mean, is there in terms of returning to the Trump base <laughs> and Trump himself, from when as he you know possibly becomes you know an an ex president. I mean, it looks like it's going to be Biden. And maybe it already is just in the time we've been talking. Maybe it's called the election. But um, do you see a, a real governance platform coalescing around Trump? I mean, he seems like it seems that he's kind of like the the Bitcoin of political candidates. He's whatever you want him to be. If you know, if you don't like the status quo, then he's that. But there's no there's no platform as such. Is there? Well, it's, you know, he's, he's on, t- it's all about TV, right? He, he loves being on TV and, and they, you know, he's clever about what, what, what issues he chooses. He chose, you know, social disorder. Uh, I mean, he's, he's not stupid. Um, and he just got 47% of the vote. So, you know, he's an enormous political force. The question for him will be, you know, if, if he's Rush, if you think of him as Rush Limbaugh and he's on, he probably won't be on every day, but he will be vocal every week. You know, what what is he going to talk about other than Joe Biden's awful and Barack Obama was born in, you know, the Soviet Union or whatever, Um and and I think that if he's looking at running again, which I'm sure he is, uh, then he the development of a platform is something that he would work out with, I don't know, Kelly and Conway and the various other advisors that he trusts. So um, and infrastructure would be he said throughout that he wanted to do infrastructure. I have no idea why they didn't do it because well, it would he did the wall. The wall was the infrastructure, I think. <laughs> no, but I mean then uh, you know those first the first uh two years they did the Ryan uh agenda, not the Trump agenda. It, was, it never made sense to me why uh, I, and again I think it goes back to what we we're talking about on the pandemic. It was a sort of failure of curiosity about how to get things done in Washington. So Paul was able to sort of say, well, this is how you do it. And we'll do my agenda. And then I'll show you how to do it. Uh, and, and there was also just the, the inability to sort of do the work. I mean, it, it, the presidency is just an enormous amount of work. I saw this with both my uncle and my cousin. And you know, it starts at six o'clock in the morning and it doesn't end until seven at night. And then frequently get, you know, calls in the middle of the night. Um, 
and it never ends. I mean, it's Saturday, Sunday. I mean, it's just a, it's a complete grind. Uh, and Trump never did the work. I mean, that's that's the thing that was astonishing to me about Trump is that he never buckled down and did the work. He he had executive time uh, and watched TV. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. What, I I don't know what to say about it. I mean, so you're. As you as you alluded to just now, uh, you know your uncle George H. W. Bush was president. Your cousin George W. Bush was president. Your cousin Jeb was governor of Florida. It's not, you have no just to clarify, you have no relatives at the executive level of government at, in states or, or in the in the national government right now. Is that right? No, I uh, my cousin. I don't know what it is. What is it when my cousin has a child? Is that a? I think it's your cousin. second. I don't know. Once removed, first cousin or something. <laughs> first cousin once removed right. uh, is uh, land commissioner in the great state of Texas, George P. Bush. Okay. Um, I have contributed, I think, fifty dollars to his political campaigns, and uh, I'm not. I, I don't really know George P. I I, uh, I haven't seen uh, him in probably four years, so I would say that most of the people that I am close to in the Bush family are. Uh, out of politics. Okay. But do you think there is a role for your cousin, the former president, George W. Bush, to step forward as, you know, sort of a, I mean, he has a lot of ceremonial position. I mean, it would seem that there's a, there, there's a tremendous ceremonial power in being a former president. You know, you become, you know, like Jimmy Carter or like, you know, Bill Clinton or who, you know, however you feel about those politicians, you know, you, from a political level, there's some of that that is forgotten once you become an ex-president. You, you know, I, I, I don't think that that's what he wants to do. I think he wants to be, uh, you know, not, uh, not uh, like his father. He just wants to be supportive of whoever the president is. Uh, Trump, Trump wouldn't let him be supportive, but had he asked him to be supportive, I think he would have done that. Um, but he'll be supportive of Biden, you know, the President's Club, all that kind of thing. Um, and if Biden asked him to, you know, speak and kind of a national reconciliation and stuff, I'm sure he would do that. Sure. But in the in the main, I think he believes that he should stay out of the public uh, public realm and and be a private citizen. But in the spirit of reconciliation, I mean, it seems that the the country could use it. I mean, it's been a bruising election period. It's been, well, a, you know, it's. George W. is a uh, divisive figure uh, still, and and uh, one not just on the Democratic side, but also in the Trump base. So it may be better for him not to step forward and kind of get everybody riled up about him. Uh, I don't. I mean, I'm. I have no idea if that's true or not. Um, he did speak at John Lewis's uh, funeral uh, eloquently, and I think that was uh, was an important moment in uh, in 2020. Um, and he has spoken eloquently about the need for a civil political life. Uh, so that I think has been great. But I, from his point of view, he he's you know this is I had my time, I had my place uh, in the sun and hmm. well let's talk news items where do people subscribe where do they find it uh, you find it at uh, news items uh, dot substack 
Substack.com. Substack is sort of the new yep. self-publishing platform. Okay. Or you can just Google uh, news items John Ellis Substack and you'll mm -hmm. you'll you'll come to it. Uh, it's uh, ten dollars a month for uh, for subscribers and it's mm -hmm. ninety bucks a year. We're going to have a Christmas special. Christmas special. Nothing, <laughs> nothing, nothing says uh, Christmas like news items. That's right. and, uh, mm -hmm. and so that'll be uh, that'll be seventy five dollars annually. Mm -hmm. so it's All already right. Tremendous excitement building about that. Great, great value. It is not a television cable news channel, but you are going to be on the on the airwaves of iHeartRadio. Well, we'll be we'll be maybe hopefully with you on uh -huh. on iHeart iHeart yeah. podcast. I guess I we're not on iHeart, mm -hmm. so so that'll be fun. And uh, and we still haven't sort of figured out what the what the format is, mm -hmm. but. Um, but it'll be a lot of fun, and and news items is, you know, it's I I say modestly, it's really interesting because yeah. the subjects are really interesting. Yeah. World in disarray, financialization of everything, right. advances in science and technology, and electoral politics. All four of those yeah. are really important and really interesting. And I scour, you know, in some days thirty sources, in some days sixty sources. And sort of put the most interesting stuff in into the newsletter. So right, and you know, I, can, I can speak to it as a you know as a subscriber, as a longtime subscriber of newsletter. <laughs> I'll give you my endorsement. I mean, you know, for better or for worse, I mean, news items readers were reading your your perspectives on the right on the pandemic back in January. Unfortunately, you know, as as the case was, I mean, you were sort you were covering this story back then. You know. the, first, the first hysterical note uh, was January 5th. January 5th, that's right. Uh, mm -hmm. and, then, and then it got increasingly hysterical. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, I, was, uh, I, I, I worked on future threats at West Point. And, you know, in, in, at West Point up until basically 9-11, the threat that was perceived was the nuclear uh, attack. And so, you know, all of the teaching, all of the sort of uh, gaming was about nuclear wars and tactical nuclear weapons and that sort of thing. Um, the chemical and bio is where I focused and the biological warfare is, is just absolutely terrifying. Uh, and so don't, don't tell me about it. Cause I'm going <laughs> to we'll be able to sleep tonight. And, <laughs> and, uh, and you know, so it happened essentially there was a, uh, a, uh, either an accident or, you know, some kind of bat was flying around and, and, uh, Wuhan, it, I mean, it was absolutely terrifying because you could see that it was going to go global. It just absolutely, there was no question about it. It was coming. And the the uh, cavalier attitude toward it here in the U.S. was just frightening. I mean, because you could see it. It was like it was like an enormous wave, and you could, you know, if you were out far enough, you could see, ooh, that's going to crash right on my house. <laughs> Oh, it's scary. Yeah, it is scary, and I hope we. Uh, I mean, with that, I gotta say, I, I, I think we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up here. But John Ellis, always always a pleasure to get your expertise on all kinds of things in this crazy world that we're living in, and hopefully, 
with the election over, I mean, we can find this country can find a way to sort of, you know, come together and repair. It's been a wild ride. This past yes, it has a wild ride, but we got to <laughs> we got to put one foot in front of the other and keep going. That's exactly. it. That's it. All right. I'll talk to you soon, my friend. Thank you very much. That's all we got for Investable Universe this week. If you liked what you heard, share the link, check out the site at investableuniverse.com or pitch us for future episodes. The address is editor at investableuniverse.com. My name is Rebecca Darst and you'll hear more from me next time.